Welcome to Episode 5 of the Cloud Native Podcast. Today we talk about the Spring 2017 Tech Conference Roundup. Welcome everyone to the Cloud Native Podcast. Uh, we're back after taking a few weeks off. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Matt Farina. I'm an engineer over at Hewlett Packard Enterprise. And with me is Matt Butcher, who for the very first time I'll introduce is an engineer at Microsoft. <laughs> because of course, um, Deus, where you worked, has been purchased and now you're part of the Microsoft Azure family. That's right. Learning how to use Outlook. <laughs> it's a little <laughs> bit different from what you were using before, eh? Yeah, quite a bit. Yeah. So welcome, everyone. Um, for those of you who this is the first time, our general go is we talk about something from the Cloud Native Developers Toolbox, and then we get into our main topic. And we have been talking about Cloud Native Fight Club. And this week, we were planning on doing Docker versus Kubernetes versus Mesos. But we're putting that on hold for an episode. And we're going to jump in instead into the um, tech conference roundup. We, you know, there have been a number of big tech conferences, and there have been some announcements. And so we're going to talk through them. But before that, we've got the Cloud Native Developers Toolbox. And so today, I actually wanted to offer up GitLab and GitLab CI. Uh, Matt, have you ever used it? I have not used GitLab. So GitLab is a competitor to uh, GitHub. And it's something you can run at GitLab.com and host your, you know, your own projects there uh, and use the public service. Or it's something that you can run on-premise. But GitLab is a little bit different from GitHub because it's um, source control, ticketing, um, CI. They have a built-in CI solution that uh, uses containers and does pipelines and some interesting things like that. Um, but they've got a number of other tools. They've brought chat in. And so it's not just your Git hosting. It's um, all the tools brought together to do your project work. At least that's what they're trying to do. And so I was going to call them out. In fact, if you head over to the show notes, one of the neat things you can do is, um, and I've, we've got examples of this, of you can deploy to Kubernetes using your favorite project, Helm. And <laughs> uh, imagine every pull request getting its own stand-up in Kubernetes using Helm and having your CI, CD deploy to versions and, and maybe create the chart and push that to a, a registry at the same time that it creates the image and pushes that to a registry and then deploys them all together. Um, there are flows and stuff like that that you can deploy, and there's examples. And so because it's using Kubernetes to deploy applications, you can do CI, CD, and it does all those parts. I would call that pretty cloud native. And yep. so if you go over to the show notes, I will link off to some examples there. So what would you say are the uh, big compelling reasons where, where someone might look at GitLab instead of just uh, hosting on GitHub or Bitbucket or something? So uh, they're all competitors to each other. Where I looked mm -hmm. at what was interesting to me about GitLab was the CI aspect right alongside of it. I mean, um, we talk about cloud native and using containers and pipelines. Maybe, you know, I've got four steps and there's one step in there where two things can happen in parallel. Well, how do I put that together and have each step be containers and maybe use different images that act as plugins and make that all work? Uh, how often, how many CI systems do that today? I would say not enough, but how many of them where if I just grabbed one system, gave me my source control and my CI and some of my tools all together where I didn't have to go searching around for all these different things. They're all just together and work. And that's one of the things GitLab has done. And it yep. caught my attention. So that's what we've got for the Cloud Native Developers Toolbox. So uh, let's talk about conferences. You got to yeah, go to a bunch of these. 
It's it's been a big conference season this year, and it's still going. I mean, uh, still uh, CoreOS Fest is coming up. The Kubernetes uh, Leadership Summit is coming up. Uh, there are a few others uh, on on the horizon. Uh, the the call for papers just closed for I think Strange Loop and uh, and uh, oh also the uh, uh, Open Source Summit, formerly LinuxCon. Yeah, yeah. So we've got more and more and more, but there were some really interesting things that have made some news, and so we wanted to take a little bit of time to talk about it. And and maybe we should kick off with the conference that maybe caused the most noise, <laughs> and um, and and maybe the most known of the conferences in the space, DockerCon. 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 And and so Matt, why don't why don't we kick it off with the thing that made the noise most noise? Can you tell us a little bit about it? Oh boy. So uh so if you've been living under a rock in the container world, you might not have heard about Docker launching their Moby project. Uh great idea, uh but but uh the way that it got launched just caused a lot of confusion in the public. Nobody could figure out if this was a new project or a fork of another project. Uh, it, a bunch of stuff was simply renamed on GitHub from the Docker org into the Moby org. But in a nutshell, and I'm going to say we called this one, in a nutshell, uh, Docker has rebranded big chunks of the core Docker engine under the uh, under the label of Moby, and it's moved to a separate project in GitHub um, and the projects have all been renamed uh, to to abide by this new sort of Moby name. Uh, what was your impression, Matt, uh, about what what exactly went wrong there in the naming? Did, were you as confused as the general populace like me seemed to be when this whole thing went down at first? Yeah, I couldn't really understand what was going on and why. Was it a new project? Where was it going? What was the reason for it? Um, and you know it, it the confusion caused a lot of um cut a lot of questions some some really bad jokes i was telling you uh, one of them, <laughs> they, uh, they were joking the kubernetes project suggested we should fork docker and docker said wait hold my beer <laughs> and uh just so lots of bad jokes about the whole thing but at the end of it i i think this ends up being a rather good thing because there have been calls to fork docker to change the governance uh docker as a company has to figure out especially being a highly touted vc company how do we navigate this space um, at the same time, there are people with competing needs on that basic container infrastructure. And we talked about container D before and some of those things. And so how do, you know, we not have forks and we not go in all these different directions and we get the base boring infrastructure, but still let a company like Docker that did this great innovation have the room to innovate, focus on their innovation, focus on their project, focus on monetizing their stuff so that they can justify their valuations and all of these things. The stuff, the stuff a business has to do while still enabling the space to continue to go forward and, and for them to stay relevant in all of it. And so the name was confusing to me. What was going on was confusing. But once I started to dig in to say, okay, they're taking their open source bits that are kind of generally things, just like they did with Containerd. Here's some more of them. We're going to put them over here in this Moby project. And then we're going to go focus on how do we bring it all together? Where are our interesting differentiators that build on top of the boring, which you want your infrastructure to be boring. You know, it's like VMs. You don't want your VM stuff to change change, but the way you orchestrate and do stuff on top of it can get interesting. So how do they go about it? And so I kind of like that. What do you think? Yeah. And I, I think we sort of, when we talked about Docker uh, earlier in our cloud native fight club, 
you know, we were talking about how there's Docker the company, Docker the project, and Docker the products, right? And how mm-hmm. uh, people sometimes fail to distinguish adequately what the, the delineation between those. And Docker has always sort of taken this approach where they want their products to always have the new and exciting stuff in them. And like you just said, uh, as operators and as DevOps, uh, a lot of times what we want is stability and reliability. And and really, a lot of it comes down to sort of like psychological comfort, right? We want to know mm-hmm. what it is we're installing. It it Many people got very bent out of shape when Docker, the product, suddenly included Docker Swarm, the product, as a component of it because it was an unexpected thing. Uh, and because they were using it as a runtime, with by breaking out Moby and Containerd and all of these things into into discrete parts, uh, I think Docker can really address the desires and the needs of uh, of groups like those who are responsible for Kubernetes's orchestration layer and and uh, or, or large enterprises. But at the same time, continue to sort of rapidly iterate on the Docker family of products and keep rolling in the things that they feel like are the best uh, you know, conglomeration of tools. If they think that Swarm ought to be part of the official Docker toolkit, they can still roll that kind of thing out, but they can still point people back over and say, but – you know, if you just want this piece of the runtime, you know, use Containerd. If you just want this part of it, just use Moby. So I think it was a very clever move. I think it was just sort of um, the, I think the failure was at DockerCon, they're trying to build a certain amount of hype and momentum because it's the conference, right? It's mm-hmm. where they get their big chance mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. unveil things. Uh, and somehow um, the message just got, confused and lost a little bit there and i think the sort of big unveil that involves renaming everything over very rapidly uh maybe might have just backfired a little bit but i do agree that i think the core idea there breaking that off putting it in its own project giving it uh, at least uh all the appearance of having its own governance model and every i think that was a very wise decision uh, by docker and by Docker, the company, <laughs> and it will really allow them to kind of, like you said, continue to please the people that really matter to them with cutting-edge releases of Docker core products, while at the same time now embracing the fact that there are parts of the ecosystem that people want to be carved off, separated, and stabilized as individual components. But, but, so but, Docker had the name recognition for all the layers. You said, this is Docker, this is Docker. Docker had the name. By taking some of these core components and sticking them under the Moby name, do you think it waters down Docker's name, name recognition, known entity in the market? Because their name won't be used as often for everything. Ooh, that is – I mean that's always a big risk with any uh, – anytime a, a big company comes in and pushes a product into open source and then gradually withdraws their name from it or suddenly withdraws their name from it. Um, so I do think, I I think you might be onto something. I think that could be a big risk for them, particularly as they're not really a big company. They're a startup, uh, and they don't need, they really don't want to lose, uh, the, the clout that comes along with, uh, having a a kind of core infrastructure piece. Do you think, uh, I mean, is your, is your feel that this is a risk on the investment and shareholders side or just a risk as far as, tech people fail you know, no longer equating Moby with Docker, the company or all of them. I, I, I'm not this sure. is financial or technical. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I, 
I'm really not sure because it really has to do, at least for me, how, because for them, their valuation and where they go is a lot dependent on paying customers. And so if the paying customers care more about things like uh, the enterprise versions of Docker, and I'm not going to misname them right now because they've <laughs> changed and I haven't kept up completely on what all the names are, right, even though I heard them earlier today. Um, I, you know, I think when it comes to the value, it's probably there for the enterprise customers, the paying customers. And so they're going to be okay um, at the end of it. Because, you know, it, it name recognition gets you so far, but what keeps you employed and getting a paycheck is people willing to pay you. And uh, customers, you know, in order for them to justify their valuation and to stick around and for the investors at the end of the day to recoup their money, people have to pay for Docker and yep. what they can sell. Yep. So also at the conference, to switch gears a little bit, they, that wasn't the only thing, was it? No, it was the only thing that really grabbed the headlines, but some other cool stuff happened at DockerCon this year. Some other uh, and Linux, Linux Kit's one of them, I think. Yeah, so when Linux Kit came out, it totally confused me. I'm like, what is Linux Kit? Is this a kit I can use to build my own Linux distro? Is it a Linux distro? Is it something to help me add on to a Linux distro, things to help me do containers. What is Linux kit? And um, the answer is yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. And, and by the way, for the Docker folks have come out with a number of different things at something kit. This isn't the first time. It's just kind of a naming pattern that they've been using over time. And so Linux kit was like, okay, here's our thing somehow around Linux. Um, Matt, you tend to know a little bit more about this than I do. So can you, and you, and you gave me this great explanation earlier. So can you try and <laughs> give us the, here's what Linux kit is in plain English or, or maybe not plain English, but uh, cloud native developer English. <laughs> No, and I think you're right. I, I mean, the general perception that it's a toolkit for building uh, smaller Linux distributions that are really container-first Linux distributions is very much uh, the accurate description of what it is. Um, you can go browse through the repo. It's I think they're hosting it at Linux Kit slash Linux Kit at GitHub. Um, and you can see, you know, in the examples, these base uh, Linux distributions that are built with something that really looks looks to me a lot like Docker's uh, compose.yaml file. But this time, you write a YAML file that says, hey, here's the kernel image I want. Here's my, uh, you know, initfs. Here's the various things I want to happen at startup. And it builds you a little Linux distribution, um, a kind of container-native Linux distribution. Uh, I think they kind of drew some inspiration. I'm going to call it without really knowing at all and say I think they were inspired in part by the way that Rancher OS has uh, has successfully containerized various pieces of a low-level Linux system. Um, and and I think they, uh, they also wanted to kind of open up more of the core of what I suspect has been behind, you know, sort of the evolution from boot to Docker and things they've learned from Docker machine. And as they built Docker for Mac and Docker for Windows, uh, I think basically uh, they've done something really cool. They built a kit that really sort of uh, makes it possible for the rest of us to enjoy the uh, or build on the uh, education that they have gained over the last, what has it been almost five years now since boot to Docker first came out? Who has it been that long? Wow. I I don't know. In, in cloud years, I <laughs> in cloud, like dog years, native years. <laughs> yeah. 
So, so let me ask this because you just touched on Linux and yet we use it at multiple layers in the stack, really, right? You've got your bottom layer where Linux will run and then you'll run like Kubernetes in that. And then there is the, um, then there's the Linux you run inside of your containers. If you're not using, say, a Scratch container, you might use Alpine or Ubuntu or something like that inside of your containers. Where would you be more likely to use something like Linux distros made from Linux Kit? Would you want to use that to build like a replacement for Alpine? Or would you want to use that as more your base one where you're running um, Docker itself in or you're running Kubernetes in those kinds of things? I I mean, well, Alpine itself can be a standalone distribution. Um, we, we've used it in some embedded stuff years ago. Um, but I mean, your, your typical Docker image is really not, I don't think, where you're, where you're going to end up using Linux Kit and getting a lot out of it. Now, if you were trying to build a lower level setup that, say, ran your own little personal Kubernetes cluster, Linux Kit is going to provide you with sort of the bare, uh, bare bones to start constructing something like that. In fact, uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Lockie, demoed earlier this week uh, to, to a couple of us how he had run Kubernetes by basically bootstrapping a Linux kit with Kubernetes running inside of it. And it was really cool. And uh, and he did it in an afternoon. Now, granted, he's super smart and knows what he's doing. I'm not going to claim that everything can be built with Linux kit in an afternoon. But, you know, clearly uh, you can have success fairly rapidly with it to build some kind of cool, uh, you know, non-trivial kinds of applications. Running Kubernetes is non-trivial. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Yeah. <laughs> So that also, you know, if we expand beyond, say, the Docker conference um, into, say, the week afterwards, there was also more big news because the news just keeps coming out of Docker. Yeah. Um, they give us a lot to talk about. And this one's a little different. Docker has a new CEO. Docker, okay, we talk about Docker, the, the product, Docker, the libraries, Docker, the company, Docker, Inc., has a, a new CEO that was announced just after DockerCon. Uh, and this, in this case, um, can you pronounce the name? So, so the new St CEO is Steve Singh, and he replaced Ben. Do you know how to pronounce it? Golub. Golub. You know, this is the thing about being on the internet. Too often, I don't hear <laughs> the pronunciation of names, and so I'm sorry if I butchered it. Uh, but uh, they replaced, yes, and Steve has been the chairman of Docker. Um, and granted, so Docker is a VC-funded um, company. And so part of this makes me wonder, what's going on with Docker as a company as they spin out Moby, as they change CEOs? Um, do you think something big is happening over there? I mean, the other big thing is they have really started to embrace Kubernetes. For a long time, the sort of rhetoric you were seeing coming out of Docker was, uh, you know, instead of Kubernetes, you swarm. Now, uh, now we're seeing a lot more uh, official news out of Docker about using Docker and Kubernetes and using Docker within Kubernetes. And uh, so I, I don't know. I think we might be. Here's my guess, because it's totally a guess, yeah. is that uh, the the pressure has been felt that Docker needs to um, to focus on uh, on its sort of grown up role, right? That they have they are now viewed as a core piece of infrastructure, and I don't know, you know, what what a transition in CEO has to do with any of this, and I'm sure a lot of it has financial implications that me as a poor engineer will not understand. Uh, but I think that it's a, yet another signal that they're taking a, taking it seriously, that they view their role as a new crucial piece of 
of common infrastructure instead of as uh, the latest and greatest uh, you know hip tool that you can play with. Yeah, you know, I hadn't thought of that, but I think you, you might be onto something there. I'm also wondering when you have some of this transition, um, you know, Docker has innovated a whole lot of really cool stuff over time. I mean, um, not just like cool in the, ooh, new hip fat, but useful things that has changed the way we think about and, and do a lot of our technology. And I would even say so far, it's, it's the thinking that's led behind that is even led into things like Lambda functions and, and smaller units and how we do it. Just the way we think about it is, is changing at a rapid pace. And, and I want to give a lot of credit to the folks at Docker for that. But yeah. when you're a VC-funded company, you also need to figure out how do you, you monetize well. And a lot of that has to do with how you play well with others and partner and work well in, you know, who pays for infrastructure, enterprise companies, things like that, who they don't single source stuff. They bring in pieces from all over. They integrate stuff together. And so for Docker to uh, the company to really be there, I think they might have to say, okay, how do we play in all of these places? So we get a piece of the puzzle and we justify our valuation. I, w I wonder if there's yeah. some kind of business strategy thing going on there. Um, and you know, there's always different people though. The folks who lead an early stage startup versus a later stage startup versus a public company, there's different people with different skill sets who are really adept at doing things at these stages. And I wonder, and I'm curious to know if we're going through kind of a, a maturity transition as far as an organization growing and spreading and their business model, just changing one of those phases now. Yeah, I, I think that Docker really, because they have been huge innovators and because they produce uh, some really fantastic software and, and, and a lot of it, uh, I think they're poised to... to to go a different route than maybe you see people like Facebook and Snap and uh, uh, Twitter go, right? Where they're just going to perpetually rely on, and even Google, right? They're going to rely on ad revenue. They're going to rely on sort of secondary uh, streams of revenue in order to fund their engineering efforts. Docker, I think, really has potential to go more the route that, oh, we can speak from experience and say HPE or Microsoft goes, right? Where you build your product around, or you build your company around your product and uh, and, and I think they have the potential to go that way, but I'm not sure that either they nor I really know exactly how that would play out over the long term. Uh, but um, I, I imagine this is all what's going on at Docker headquarters where they're trying to figure out how to make – how to basically make good on the promises that they've made to, uh, to really become that mature infrastructure company because they, they really are heading that way uh, while also at the same time figuring out a sustainable long-term business model. Yeah, and and uh, I'll be honest, all this, all the stuff that they've been doing and that came out of DockerCon and just after, um, it caught my attention in what I would say is a, a good way, right? In my mind, the way yeah. that they're acting and carrying themselves, maybe taking notice in a way that I appreciated. Yeah, yeah. So I, I want to give them that. Um, yeah, yeah. But, I, I frankly think in in looking back, I think DockerCon 2017 might not have had a ton of news. But I do feel like it, it will. We'll look back on it and say, well, that was kind of the year that Docker embraced their role as a new central piece of the cloud native infrastructure, instead of uh, instead of playing the sort of uh, hip card. Which I think that's a natural evolution for a long term software yeah. company. I think it's been a really exciting. I think that is what's really exciting about the last DockerCon. 
Yeah. So, DockerCon was not the only conference, even though we spent a bunch of time talking to it. Let's talk about an oldie but goodie. You got to go to the OpenStack Summit. Yeah, in full disclosure, we ought to say that both of us have worked quite a bit on OpenStack over the years. Uh, We both worked together on HP Cloud, which was a, would we call it a, it was both a distribution, which is now Helion, uh, but also a public cloud competitor. Um, and and so we both have had uh, quite a bit of experience in the past with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been to OpenStack, the OpenStack Summit, OpenStack Conferences, and done a fair amount. And so I, I've watched it from its, its early days and its evolution, maturity, and changes. And so when you said, I'm going to the OpenStack Summit, <laughs> and we're going to talk about Kubernetes, I was like, what? <laughs> you know you're going to the wrong place, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, this is OpenStack? What Kubernetes? What, what's going on? Um and so there was a fair amount of talk about Kubernetes at the OpenStack Summit. And in and, and full disclosure, this isn't the first time that it's, it's come up or somehow invaded the OpenStack conference. Yeah, before we get dive into that, when, what was the earliest OpenStack event you remember going to? Were you, uh, was it Austin maybe? Maybe, yeah. I was, yeah. I, I mean, back in, when we were working on it in... Uh, what 2011 12 13 ish Mm -hmm. it still felt like a pretty tight-knit fairly small community and then of course uh, i've been absent from it for for years now for about five years four years four years maybe wow and it was sort of like a shock to come i mean it's like you know when you hang out with your friends and they've got a little kid and then you move away and then you come back to visit and their kids are grown up that was what openstack summit was like for me it was like whoa there are all these people here who are not engineers, you know, and there's this huge, you know, hall full of vendors and stuff like that. Uh, so it was a, it was um, surprising. It was, it was kind of cool in a lot of ways to see how the, how, how it's matured. Um, also, uh, yeah, it was a little bit daunting because there were far fewer engineers there. I remembered, you know, OpenStack groups as being primarily engineers talking to engineers about ways to get stuff done. This one definitely felt more commercial, and I'm sure it's been uh, years in the making. Uh, also, big, big uh, presence by, uh, you know, telecom companies and um I met a lot of people who were into who were in the business development and marketing sides of things. So it was it was a different conference than I was expecting going into it. But that said, they worked really hard to build space where it was sort of engineering focused. So you could go to sessions that were uh, people unveiling their new product built on other product built on top of particular OpenStack component. But there was there was another uh, session or another track and and actual physically um, lounge space laid out for developers and engineers and DevOps to sort of hang out and talk about the way uh, they wanted the project to mature and, and their concerns and their ideas. So maybe something to think about is we were working on OpenStack really in the early days when it was growing, when it was rapidly changing, when it was innovating, when it was the hot new, uh, in some ways I would say hip thing. So you could have your cloud platform everywhere. Do you think OpenStack has kind of now turned that corner to say a lot of what they have is mature enough in far as services? And so now people are figuring out, well, how do I build 
uh, support companies and products that sit on top of it, the same way you do maybe with the public clouds. It's kind of turned that corner from we don't have to have all of these engineering figure out the hard problem meetups. Now we're turning into more of how do we market it and sell it and package it and set people up to operate it well, those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah, and I think so. I think uh, OpenStack is really uh, – my view of it at this point is I think it's hit sort of maturity, right? So we're talking about how Docker is really just sort of on that cusp of transitioning from a startup technology, you know, oriented around, you know, in that early adopter curve, and it's transitioning into sort of its role as the as a fundamental infrastructure piece. I think you're right that OpenStack is well into its – uh, it's mm, maturity, I guess. Uh, main, uh, I, I don't know. You don't really talk about OpenStack as being something in mainstream adoption because the fact of the matter is none of us really run OpenStack on our laptops. Or, um, But I, I, I think it's hit its maturity on that kind of growth curve, and that was reflected in the audience. It was there uh, to talk about it and to learn about it and buy and sell products based on it. So Kubernetes at the OpenStack Summit, you, you did a session on it. Um, what, what does Kubernetes have to do with OpenStack? And what was interesting about Kubernetes at the OpenStack Summit? Yeah, I was shocked that at almost every given time slot in this, what is it, a four-day conference, in almost every set time slot, you could find at least one session about Kubernetes. Now, some of them were little small ones, and some of them were, you know, keynote size. And I went to some, uh, you know, AT&T's architect gave a talk to a packed, uh, you know, giant ballroom about how they were using Kubernetes, where, uh, you know, in other sessions, uh, we talked with people in very small groups of six or eight about managing differences in project management between Kubernetes and OpenStack. So really, they sort of ran the gamut. But at any given time, I was shocked to see that on the official schedule were sessions about Kubernetes and OpenStack. And every once in a while, you would hear somebody sort of grousing about you know, how uh, Kubernetes was trying to steal, you know, the market from OpenStack or something. But really, I think everybody there, uh, largely, the majority of people there, the vast majority of people there had a different view. And that was that uh, OpenStack and Kubernetes were really um, two projects trying to solve two different sets of problems that in many ways might have, uh, you know, some significant and important uh, ways that they could be hooked up and linked together. So, uh, you know, Mark Shuttle, Mark Shuttleworth, the uh, from mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. Ubuntu. I accidentally went into the wrong room, and it was him talking. And as soon as I got in there, I'm like, oh, I'm standing here now. Uh, so I had to walk five minutes into the session. I had to walk all the way up to the front row and sit right in the middle. And he looks down at me as I'm like walking up the front, and I'm going, well, this is awkward, but you know. <laughs> 30 seconds of awkward is going to be worth it. And it was. And it was fascinating to hear him talk about Canonical's approach to Kubernetes and OpenStack. And he said it very plainly. He said, and, and of course, Ubuntu has their own products that fit into this space. Things like LXD, LXD that we talked about a few weeks ago uh, was an, uh, is a Canonical product. And they still have a place for it in their – but when he sort of laid out what he saw as being this the new cloud native stack his vision of it was it starts with canonical's metal of, as a service maz offering to get you to provision your hardware up as if it were you know in a way that i think 
makes provisioning uh, bare metal as uh, attractive as the way we provision virtual machines, right? You say, I need to scale up my physical nodes, and you've got physical boxes that are spun up. And uh, and so he says, that, you know, his view is it starts there. You provision some metal, you have a system that is capable of imaging um, bare metal very quickly. Then you layer on top of that a virtual machine layer, which gives you isolation, gives you the ability to really leverage your hardware to its max. And so, you know, Shuttleworth sort of gives this vision that you've got Maz, and on top of that goes OpenStack. And OpenStack offers management of your physical store or of your storage layer as well as your virtual machine layer. And then on top of that, you really want a further abstraction where you're really dealing just with application instances running. And so for him, uh, he saw Kubernetes as sort of the natural complement to OpenStack. And so you put your MAS down, then you put your OpenStack down, and then on top of that, you provision your Kubernetes cluster. And then as far as your day-to-day uh, app developers go, um, they're working at the Kubernetes layer. And they're building Docker images, and they're uh, you know uh, uh, deploying them into this Kubernetes cluster, and they have very little... Uh, to think about when it comes to any of the layers lower. But then for other kinds of applications, uh, you drop down to OpenStack when you need to do some virtual machine types of stuff for security reasons. Um, and and your Kubernetes cluster, of course, is running inside of OpenStack on these virtual machines. So as you're scaling out your Kubernetes cluster, you need to add a new Kubernetes node. You just spin up a new virtual machine. Uh, and, and basically, it's not until you're out of virtual machine resources that then you kick off another node and, and auto-scale your MAS out. So I thought that was a really compelling view, uh, one really compelling view of how you might get Kubernetes and OpenStack to uh, together sort of build something better than either Kubernetes or OpenStack on its own can offer. So so just to cut in, you know, Ubuntu, well, they've got LXD and LXC. They have a Kubernetes product. Did you know that? Yes. Yes, they do. They do. So they do. They are a Kubernetes distributor. It's a, is it a Kubernetes distro that you can run? Yeah. But this, yeah, in typical Mark Shuttleworth fashion, he did demo it live on stage. And, live and demo. Worked. Yeah, wow. and it worked again. And it works. All right. He's got, he's got the best uh, best live demo karma of anyone I've ever seen. <laughs> Yeah, because so many people have it go wrong and just have something break. In fact, I was watching a video of something from Build we'll get to in a minute, and it broke on stage <laughs> because of, I think they were saying Wi-Fi issues. And I'm watching this going, yep, I've been there. I've been there. Video backups. You video it because <laughs> you never know what will happen. Um, but when when you get to this, what he's proposing is something maybe different than what Google has done. Because Google, right, they lay down Borg, and then inside of Borg, they run their containers, and that's how they run their stuff. But then they run VMs inside of Borg. And so the bottom isn't metal and then VMs and then containers. It's metal, then containers, and then VMs. In fact, if I remember right, for their cloud, inside of those VMs, they then go and spin up containers for their <laughs> customers. Because containers don't give you the the isolation for you know multi-tenancy where Coke and Pepsi can run next to each other. And so they use the VMs to create that isolation until the world figures out how to give containers the isolation that's still to be worked. It, it's a goal. Some people are working on it, but it's not there yet. So they use that. And so it sounds like um, Mark Shuttleworth proposed something different than say the way Google did something. And if I understand it, that's kind of a broader theme in terms of Kubernetes and OpenStack and where they sit in the ecosystem. 
Can you talk yep. a little bit about yeah. how those differences were talked about at the conference? Yeah. In fact, at the end, uh, Shuttleworth says, well, does anybody have any questions? And one person from the audience raises their hand and says, well, yeah, what if you wanted to invert that and run Kubernetes and then run uh, you know, OpenStack inside of Kubernetes? And he sort of said, well, I don't really understand why you do that, but uh, you know, there, there are projects out there to help you do that. And of course, Canonical will, will help you get that done. <laughs> so, uh, so that was a, that was, that was exactly the kind of answer I would have expected out of him, but there were other, you know, I mentioned the keynote that AT&T gave where they talked about exactly that AT&T has contributed OpenStack Helm as a open source project. Um, and I've worked very, very closely with them on this, um, because we, we have, I, I'm the, project lead for Helm. And Helm is a way of packaging and distributing applications on top of Kubernetes. Well, they wanted to package and distribute OpenStack on top of Kubernetes uh, because they liked that particular Borg approach uh, where they wanted to be able to provide uh, their their OpenStack um, user base with a way of provisioning clusters very rapidly without having to know anything about the hardware setup under them. Uh, you know, basically to be able to run a command that's in a nutshell, Helm install, you know, OpenStack and have it spin up an entire cluster for them that they can then control uh, to their desired depth. And they were not the only ones who brought that approach out at OpenStack Summit. SAP has also talked about that in public already. They talked about it at KubeCon EU, and they were at OpenStack Summit talking about their approach there. Um, and, uh, and also the Cola Kubernetes project, which is a part of Cola, OpenStack Cola, which has a, a been a concerted effort by several developers to build a, a good solid distribution of OpenStack, and they can deploy that now on top of Kubernetes. And so we have seen, you know, we're seeing at least three major players in this space that are saying we'd like that I, that Borg model, where we would use Kubernetes as our base layer. So for them, I presume, you know, it's it's metal. Maybe they've got a MAS-like layer, and then on top of their metal, they're provisioning Kubernetes, and then on top of Kubernetes or within Kubernetes, they're provisioning multiple OpenStack clusters, each one tooled to whatever the needs of that particular business unit or customer or whatever are. So it was interesting. I got to see sort of both sides and got to listen to uh, two very compelling different use cases, both of which I think are valid. Now, I'm hoping that nobody goes the full-on Google route and starts doing Kubernetes on OpenStack on Kubernetes on OpenStack on Kubernetes because uh, that might be <laughs> it's turtle all it's turtles all turtle, the way yeah. down, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so there was a lot of talk about Kubernetes at OpenStack, and and it sounds like uh, how even the recommended best practice there isn't there isn't one way to do it. There's no recommendation of go this way. Um, it's there's a dual path approach that it sounds like it's still in those days. It's one of those engineering problems that's still being worked on. Yeah, and I think that if we all build our tools well, then uh, and and at the right level of abstraction, I mean, the cloud native promise should be that they can do it. We can build it either way. One might be more performant than the other, and that at the end of the day might be what the criterion is or solve the base case better, but. Uh, yeah, I think it's a testament to uh, to both of those communities that this is even possible to do. 
Yeah, it is because the communities are working together. They're OpenStack people in the Kubernetes community and they're Kubernetes people in the OpenStack community and everyone's playing nice together. Uh, yep. Back when I used to be on some of the islands in open source software, it used to be, well, you're not going to go off the island and really work with these other islands all that well. And I see it playing more together than I have in the past. And I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think if I were to summarize kind of the theme out of the OpenStack Summit, out of the track that I've out of my admittedly biased view since I was focused on the Kubernetes OpenStack stuff was that here you saw a mature project, OpenStack, that was uh, was very interested in seeing how they could sort of hoist the uh, the new project, Kubernetes, and and you know really build some really interesting things by figuring out different combinations and different approaches to combining the two. Yes. And so we should probably switch gears to the last conference that we yeah. have listed here. And it's one that I laugh at because a few years ago, I would never have thought about talking about this in the cloud native space. It was enterprisey. And now you're, now your will, your work has been purchased by them. And so we're going to talk about them, but I actually want to talk to them. I'm excited. It's, it's, it's Microsoft's build conference and uh, Azure when it comes to cloud and cloud native has gotten interesting. Especially yeah. with things like um, Azure Container Service (ACS) and what's going on there to make it easy. I mean, we talk about um, you know running containers in uh, AWS, and AWS has kind of their own way to do containers, unless you're going to lay down Kubernetes or your own thing and manage it yourself. Um, Google Google does contain uh, Kubernetes really well. I mean, Kubernetes is their project, but yeah. ACS has come along and it does Docker, uh, Mesos. Swarm, yeah. And Kubernetes, it's not saying, hey, we're going to you know, double down on our own or on a particular one. We're going to make it easy to do the three big players in the market that we're going to throw down on in Cloud Native Fight Club and coming up in a future episode. And uh, there and, were some – And they've, they've made it remarkably easy to, to, to deploy these things too. Uh, so easy that I accidentally deployed a Mesos cluster without even realizing it the other day. Because really, it's just one one command. I typed in the wrong thing on the uh, Azure AZ command and deployed myself a Mesos cluster. I'm like, oh, wow, this is great. <laughs> the UX is so easy, we can accidentally bill you for things you accidentally <laughs> spun up. And hey, it happened. Sorry. <laughs> That's easy UX. So so the, at the build conference, there was, there was talk about um, ACS. And there were some neat things that came out of it. Um, and, and two of them really struck me. One of them is one, something I've wanted to see for a while personally. But first, there was this idea of the Azure Cloud Shell. Um, is that what it's called? A Cloud Shell, Azure Cloud Shell? Is it ACS Cloud Shell? What's, I, what's I, the right name? I think we're just calling it Azure Cloud Shell. Okay. And so Azure Cloud Shell. Tell us about Azure Cloud Shell. Well, uh, some of us... Uh, happen to like command lines a lot more than we like pointing and clicking. Uh, so Cloud Shell is an interesting product to merge together that sort of web console with, or the you know the web uh, console interface with an actual uh, terminal window. And so you can, from your Azure console, uh, spin up a terminal that connects you to your ACS cluster, and uh, you know you can uh, take a look around and and 
basically be an acting node inside of your Azure cluster and uh, and do all of that inside of the web browser. So it's a uh, it it means sort of the combination of the console running securely inside of your web console, giving you that same kind of command line experience that otherwise you would get by uh, running a, a series of commands at your at your command line. Uh, so it's kind of a cool way to just lower a barrier of entry and and make the functionality a little bit easier to get to and quicker. And the nice thing that I like about it is that, so, you know, I'm, I'm logging on from my personal computer. I got to do something really quick and log into the cloud console. Yeah. I don't want to download and configure everything locally. So I can log in uh, via the web and then kick off this console and have my home directory there and have Helm pre-configured talking to my Tiller instance in the cloud and in Kubernetes, and I can just uh, fire away really quickly, get it done, shut it down, and close my laptop and go back to regular life. I really like that kind of experience, and I thought that was a really cool way uh, for Microsoft to sort of bubble up that experience uh, and make something that uh, would have normally required about 30 minutes of configuration uh, be completely pain-free. So so let me ask this, because it's Microsoft, so I have to ask. Is this a PowerShell-like shell? Is it a POSIX-like shell? Is it a command.exe-like shell? What's the shell like? It's Bash. Okay, there could be other ones. The only one I've ever used is Bash. I mean, uh, I work for Microsoft and, and do Linux all the time, all day, every day. So uh, so I I have only played with the Bash version. I'm not sure if there's a PowerShell version. Uh, I'm going to have to plead naivety on this one. No, and I call it out because um, Microsoft is not is getting known for its Linux or its POSIX credentials, and uh, a lot of developers they like Linux, they like POSIX, they like that kind of thing. And so I think it's neat to see that um, in this environment, and that's what you know. Yeah. It, and then there's the other announcement that came out. And so um, I'm going to prefix this one by saying uh, I have long said that for, for app developers, Kubernetes is hard. It's, it's difficult. When, um, when we started SIG apps a long time ago, you know, it was this idea of how do we try to make application development and operation easier? What kinds of things? And I think Helm goes a long way to that. And at Build, uh, the first knowledge came out of a new tool that came out of uh, you wonderful folks at Deis, uh, now Microsoft, to help with those app development, that, that getting started, that working. And it's uh, Draft. Can you tell us a little bit about Draft and, and what it does, where it sits in the stack, how it's different from Helm? Yeah, Uh when Michelle gave her keynote at Michelle Norley, who's on my team and who is one of the uh, leads on or one of the long, long, long time contributors to Helm, one of the earliest, um, she gave a keynote at KubeCon EU and she said, you know, for for DevOps, Kubernetes has been a really positive step, right? We're getting farther and farther down uh, the trail of being able to focus on what really matters and and not have to focus so much on mundane details and you know we don't have to manage everything by SSH and worry about failures on hard drives impacting applications all over the place. But for the developer, life has gotten harder with cloud native, uh, and and in part that's why we have this podcast, right? Because we we recognize that cloud native developers are in new territory, and for Michelle who really learned on uh, on some 
interesting frameworks like Rails, uh, going back and trying to build applications, then Dockerize them. And then she saw that as being um, a, a real step in the wrong direction for your for your average web developer, for your average application developer. Um, Prow is a uh, – Draft is a tool. <laughs> we renamed it. Draft is a tool that uh, that is designed to address that problem. It is a tool that is designed to with like the Rails or the Django experience in mind. You should be able to run a few commands and get your application up and running. It's it's closer to so Day has built a PaaS, and the original promise of the PaaS is that it would be easier for you to build and deploy applications like Heroku provides, right, or like mm-hmm, Cloud Foundry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We liked that. It is a very powerful way of building something. But Kubernetes took away a lot of what the PaaS used to have to do and said, wait, you know, we have a better, more consistent, uh, more manageable way of doing this. Uh, Draft sort of fits that last mile where it says, okay, um, you should be able to write an application in whatever language you want to write an application in. Okay, it might be Python or Java or C Sharp or TypeScript or, you know, whatever. but you have to get from that application to having something that can be deployed into Kubernetes. So we'll build a tool that streamlines that process for you. So with just a couple of commands, you can say, okay, here's my application. Build me out all the scaffolding necessary to make this a kind of thing that can be easily installed and managed inside of Kubernetes. So behind the scenes, what it's what it does is, you know, you type draft up and it uh, takes a look at your code and says, oh, this looks like a Python app. Okay, here's a Docker image that will uh, that we can use to build Python apps. And, um, you know, here's a scaffolded out set of Kubernetes uh, manifests in the form of a Helm chart. And we'll wrap all this stuff around it for you. And you don't even have to know about it or manage it. If you don't care about it, we'll handle all the details. And then you, you know, type in your draft watch thing and it Kicks up, kicks your application up into your Kubernetes cluster uh, via this Helm chart that you don't have to know anything about, and uh, and a Dockerized build that you don't have to know anything about, and you're just running your application. It, it to you, it should feel as easy as uh, using Heroku or Elastic Beanstalk or a, a Cloud Foundry. But behind the scenes, Draft is basically doing all the things necessary to bootstrap this for Kubernetes and for Docker. And then at the end of the day, when you're all done with your development cycle, you can do that kind of Helm package step and have a prepackaged Helm application that you can hand off to your DevOps team and they can go run it in production. Uh, so it's been a really, really fun project because it's drawn on our background and our passion for uh, you know, building uh, – easy developer workflows that can accomplish profound functionality with very little uh, demand on the developer. But then uh, the kinds of artifacts that it's building, the Docker file and the chart, are things that when you're ready to sort of level it up and go and tweak and build things out in a very particular way, as a draft user, you can go in there and modify those things and even test out your changes to the chart or your changes to the Docker file uh, without sort of violating some sort of invisible line that you weren't allowed to cross. So I'm really excited about it because it's sounding a little sales pitchy, even though this is an open source project. I'm really excited about it because I feel like we're really starting to accomplish something that I'm passionate about, which is uh, making it easier for app developers to build stuff in a cloud-native way. Uh, It should be as easy as Rails. I think we're getting a lot closer to that. 
So I wanted to touch on a couple of things you just talked about here. One, you said you can use Draft Watch to watch your code base. What's happening when it's watching? Okay, and I think it's draft up watch. I can't remember all my uh, which uh, <laughs> we go back and forth, and I think the final form just added a dash dash watch flag. But what's happening is, so you've got your local copy of your application. So let's just say you've got your Python app, right? Could be Node.js or Java or something else. But um, so you're you're uh, using VS Code or VI or whatever, and you're editing away at your files, and uh, you finish your functionality and you save it. Okay. Then normally you would drop down to your build tools, you would build some stuff, and then you would run some commands to run the test, and then you would push it all up into the cluster, and then you would you know, uh, reset your ingress or service to point to it, right? All of those are sort of mechanical steps that you shouldn't have to do. Mm-hmm. So in watch mode, it's watching your source code to see when you save. And when you save, uh, you know, it emits an event at the operating system level, and we pick that up. And we rerun the Docker build, and we re-push that image back up into your Kubernetes cluster or your image repository, uh, and then we rebuild, we re-execute a Helm upgrade and upgrade it for you inside of Kubernetes. And all you have to do is, in, in the time it takes you to, you know, uh, click on your browser window and refresh it behind the scenes, we're doing all of that work for you, so that if you're writing, you know, a Python web app, you can write some code, save it wait a couple seconds, refresh your browser window, and check out the results of that work you've just done. So in watch mode, it's kind of assisting you as you're developing along the way. That is handy. The other thing that um, I was curious about is, so with a PaaS, and this is one of those things, I, you know, I kept saying, it, how does this line up with a PaaS? And with a PaaS, you end up with um, you tend to end up with something like a Heroku build pack, and it, it's very opinionated. You build your code for the paths. It gives you not the starting point, but the final point, right? You build it for this, and then you can keep deploying, and, and it does a lot for you. But you touched on this idea that, you know, it does that. It builds it up, and it deploys it, and you can keep doing that, and you get your, your Helm charts and your other artifacts uh, that you need to to deploy it in a cloud-native manner. But you can actually go in and start tweaking those. Because one of the things about Kubernetes is it gives you the ability to do amazingly complicated things. It makes the complicated possible, but sometimes the easy is hard. And so it sounds like what you're saying is it gives you that first step. And if you really want to get complicated, you've got the full power to get complicated in there. um, And the tools still work even when you customize it. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, uh, take the, so we've got a Helm chart in there, right? And one of the advantages of a system like this is if you want to add a Redis database to your application, really it should be as simple as going in and dropping the Redis chart inside of your, inside of your Helm repo and, or inside of your Helm chart as a subchart. And the next time you deploy, it'll bring up that Redis cluster for you. That's kind of the feel we're after, and that's the feel that I think you should have, and that's uh, one of the things that I think Draft is is going to make possible uh, and simplify the the lives of developers, right? You don't have to go set up an external service that provides you Redis and then figure out how to manage and copy and paste various things back and forth between one web browser and your uh, your developer environment. This should all just be part of the environment you work in. All right. Well, it kind of turned from a conference talk into a sales pitch on a couple of things you've worked on. But I'm all right with that because uh, at the end of the day, the things that make life easier for uh, cloud-native app development are the kinds of things I appreciate. So, um, hey, it worked out. Yeah, yeah. 
So sorry, sorry for getting so enthusiastic on you. I'll try and keep it toned down. In no, the no, no, that's all right. <laughs> so that's what we got on DockerCon, the OpenStack Summit and Build that caught our attention. Um, thanks everyone for listening, and we'll be back next time. Bye. <laughs>